Charles Louis Mortgage Advisors, 0161 959 0166. Hello and welcome to the very latest um, Forever Blue podcast, which is sponsored, as you heard there in the introduction, by um, the sponsors who've been with me for quite some time now. Um, they are charleslouis.co.uk, uh, they are Chartered Mortgage Advisors and so much more. Have a look at their website, uh, listen to their phone number, give them a call and tell them that you're interested in buying or selling or finding out about mortgages and they will try and help you the best they can. Uh, great people. Dave, who runs the company, is particularly helpful to me, of course, uh, but most importantly for us and in our little group here, he's a City fan. So, uh, so obviously um, look after him as much as he looks after us. Now, I've got three guests on the podcast tonight. We have um, the superstar, that is Mr. Nader Manua, who has been with us before this season, of course, and I'm ho- hopefully he'll be back with us again at some point in the future. But for now, we're glad to have him. So, Nadim, I saw you at the game earlier today. Mm. Um, it was uh, before the game had even kicked off, but I would imagine you enjoyed that, didn't you? Yeah, I most certainly did, yeah. I most certainly did. And uh, I'm sure we'll get into that in the show. But yeah, there's plenty to talk about. Thank you. Um, we've also got Mark. Mark is from City Matters, but he's a lifelong blue. He's gone home and away. And if he wants to bring up something about City Matters, he can today. But that's not why he's on. He's on just to talk about the blues and to talk about um, City and, and how they're doing at the moment. Uh, a little bit later, on, I'm sure we'll talk about Sergio Aguero as well, because obviously it looks as if he's going to have to hang his boots up because of um, heart problems. It's not been announced formally yet, but that seems to be the direction and it's all going. The fans today at the game were singing his name and um, showing their support for him, which was lovely to hear. Um, so we'll talk about that as well. And we've also got Tony, who's uh, been a great supporter of mine. has uh, become a good friend and is also a great contributor to the, uh, the podcast. So thanks very much to the three of you. Um, let, let's get, first of all, your thoughts on the game then. Um, straightforward one, this really, a 3-0 victory. Uh, certainly when the second goal went in from Rodri, from that point onwards, it felt like the game was over. Um, how did you see it, Nathan? What, what What's your analysis of all? No, I, I kind of agree with you, but I think this was one of those fixtures which I think could have been tricky. Like, even though City have got a good record against Everton in recent times, it's almost like it, it was the look-ahead game before PSG. So if, if, for example, we didn't pick up the three points, then you'd have been like, well, you know, you, you could see they were distracted. But in fairness to them, I think Everton, obviously, they've got a ton of players injured and so on, but they were very much on the back foot for the majority of the game. And even when they, especially in the first half, when it felt like Everton had a sort of sniff of danger, I think City defended it quite well overall because they committed bodies back to dealing with it. Kyle Walker, I thought one-on-one was very good. The two centre-backs, like when I was on uh, Radio Manchester earlier, the, uh, Mike was saying, oh, you know, you've not really heard much about them, but that's because they're doing the job so well because they were having to deal with Richarlison. So that was impressive. And then thankfully, you know, they got they got some goals in there. And it's just, for as good as the first goal was and the second goal, like they're incredible and you're happy you'll take the three points. It would have been nicer if it was more like a tapping in the six-yard box because you can expect those to happen on a week-to-week basis. But the fact is, this is a game of football and they've managed to get the result. And, you know, they keep rolling. They've got momentum, three points off top and going getting ready for a big Champions League game midweek, I feel. I seem to remember you scoring a, a, a great individual goal, Nadam. There might not have been a lot of them in your career, but, but I do remember <laughs> one. And that's not that's not a goal. <laughs> it is, it is, but that's rightly so though, because the numbers don't lie, do they? <laughs> <laughs> but when that ball at the back of the net, I mean, I don't know, as a fan, certainly it is just one of those 
ecstatic feelings when the ball goes in from that distance, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. It was, it was such a clean strike. And, you know, looking back, I think Pickford just got a finger onto it, but he, he literally struck it so hard. And for me personally, I was very happy about it because Rodri has been having a great few weeks and I thought he was having a great game as well. So to be able to sort of take a goal from it as well. And it's like, it's an obvious way to give a player praise now because he scored, you know, in a game, like it could be a nice thing to be like, oh, this is nice. But when you scored and when he gets the ball 30 yards out after that and everyone's shouting, shoot, I'll hold my hands up. I've heard that before and it's kind of gotten in my head and I thought maybe I should shoot. This is after I scored a goal. Maybe I should, maybe I should. But it's, it's a nice feeling. I think he, his confidence level will go even higher, even though he's already been playing fantastically, in my opinion. All right, let's 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 single out another player who didn't score and who played as a defender. So I'm, I'm praising the defensive uh, player now, um, Jao Cancelo, with that fantastic ball with the outside of his right yeah, foot. I mean, OK, it needed finishing by Sterling, but that was some ball, wasn't it? Oh, it was absolutely outrageous. I was losing my mind on the radio earlier, and I kept thinking, oh, I'm supposed to be neutral here, but that's one of the nicest goals I think I've seen. Because for him to get the ball in that position, for the first error that, sort of, that Everton made was that nobody went to try and apply pressure, because overall, they were quite good at doing that. So they gave him time, but to see the pass and to play the pass, and thankfully, you know, still in different shelf because I thought first half he was good as well. It's outrageous. Like when they show the camera angle from behind Cancelo when he played it, there's no ball that's on there. There's nothing to be seen, especially not with the outside of your right boot, to be able to play somebody in like that. But then credit to him and Sterling because they definitely have that sort of relationship where they're looking to see like when someone's going and when the right time to play the ball is. But that's when you can tell your confidence is high when you're just using every part of your foot because you know, the other side of it is you just keep it simple sometimes, but to be able to play a ball like that with the outside of your foot to somebody who wasn't really out in the open, like there's a reason Sterling's basically free to, t- to knock it in. It's because nobody's expecting that. It's absolutely outrageous, but it's, it's probably one of the best goals I've seen at the stadium, to be honest. Be honest, Nate. I mean, have you ever played a pass like that? Do you know what? I, I haven't. I, like I'd use my left foot instep. I'd never use my right foot outside just because if that goes wrong you kick the turf and then the ball curls the other way so it's always a little bit dicey you know you can see it and want to do it but it's not the percentage play but for him you can see he's he's clearly mastered every part of his right foot so you know fair fair play to him it was a joy and I've got five aside on Wednesday and I may try it but I may only try it once because if it doesn't work out I will never try it again. (laughs) Mark what was your view of today's game? Um, Talk about Cancelo I thought that was interesting what he said there Ned because He's not a percentage player. It's no. interesting, isn't it? He's a fullback, and normally you want a Kyle Walker fullback, straight up and down, gets his tackles in, covers. And, you know, I'm old school, I love that. But he's the exact opposite of that, in a way. He's not mm. a percentage player. He plays outrageous balls. He plays balls that Kevin might play or other players in the team. And and from time to time, he makes me nervous because he'll try stuff and he's the fullback. So if it goes wrong, they've got space in behind. So he's one of those players who I love to watch when he's attacking, but he frightens me to death at some <laughs> at some points in the game. Um, but th- today was different, and it was partly because we were so good, and I just thought Everton were a bit short, and they had quite a few injuries. I mean, some of their better players weren't playing today, and that helped. And I think that basically Benitez set them up not to get hammered, it seemed to me. Because even when they played pretty well in the first half, and that was mainly with like a low block, as they call it, I believe, these days, you know, very, very defensive. When they got the ball off us, they weren't that great on the break, whereas Palace had caused us so many problems with Zaha. Um, you know, they weren't that great on the break. And I think it was because they didn't have the nippy players. We probably got lucky that the young uh, guy went off. Everton had an injury early on, didn't they? Uh, and he was their pace up front. I've forgotten the player's name now, I apologise. Damari Gray. 
that's it, Damari Gray. And he's played pretty well this season. So suddenly, you know, it was pretty much the danger just came from Townsend, who always seems to give us a little bit of a problem. Um, and I like him. I think he's a good player. So it was almost like it was written in the stars. We were going to, I'm a nervous fan, but it was written in the stars. They were going to put on a low block. If we went 1-0 up, we should see, keep the ball and win the game. So it was nice to do it with a couple of brilliant goals, not two scrappy ones. But yeah, defensively they were great today. Everton didn't have a sniff really. Who was your man of the match, Mark? Was it was it Rodri who got the shout officially? Yeah, I think it probably was actually. As much as Cancelo should get it just for the pass for the Sterling goal, he was involved in everything, wasn't he? You know, when they did attack, he did cover brilliantly. And he, you know, a bit like Fernandinho's done for years, he's not just a defensive midfield player. He starts everything. You know, one swivel of hips and a pass out to the wing, or, a, you know, the ball comes through him when we switch the play. So, yeah, I'd probably give it to Rodri. And Rodri's in absolutely brilliant for weeks now. And it's great to see him improve, isn't it? You know, like when he first came, he kept getting caught out now and again because of Probably the pace of the game wasn't what he was used to. Uh, and again, a classic Pep. Give Pep like 12 months with a decent player. They become a world beater. Uh, and that's obviously what's happening with Rodri. I love him. I think he's a great player. Well, I can't argue with your selection. Uh, I, I must admit, every game I watch at the moment, I, uh, it's hard to see past Bernardo Silva for me. I mean, his contribution yeah. to, to every game is just phenomenal, isn't it? Yeah, they work so hard, you know. I mean, someone like Bernardo just works so hard. I remember a game against Liverpool a couple of seasons ago where he was putting in the tackles more than anybody else. He puts in such a shift and then he can dribble and he can pass. He can do the lot, you know. And he's got his mojo back. He probably had about eight or nine months where he just wasn't the player we know he can be. Uh, and it's great to see him doing that. And, you know, you know, without Kevin today, it's, you know, it's strange, isn't it? You know, we didn't miss him, basically, which is a great thing to be able to say about uh, a team like City. You know, it's, uh, it's great to be able to play without one of your better players, maybe even the best player, and still put on a performance like that. Once the second goal went in, Everton were totally done. Um, once the ball flew in from the shot, it, was, uh, it felt like game over to me. Tony, which was the better goal? Let's put you on the spot then. Was it the first one, the Cancelo pass, or was it the Rodri strike into the top corner? First one. Yeah. First one. Uh, yeah. I think if you were to ask them both to do the same thing again um, on Wednesday, Cancelo will do that pass again. Whereas I think Rodri, not saying that it was luck, because it was obviously he's got the skill to do that, but I think it would take him another 10, 20 shots to do that again. Whereas I think Cancelo's got that natural skill to... We've seen the balls like that off him um, time and time again um, throughout the season so far and last season. So definitely the first one, I think, uh, for me, um, there's more of the, the team to it as well, um, which I always like to see as well. And Sterling getting the goal sheet as well. Great finish Obviously. by Sterling. wasn't easy to do what he did to make yeah. those times. So fair play to him, I thought. Were any of you worried about the absence of Kevin De Bruyne? I mean, obviously he's got COVID, so he's going to miss the PSG game. And I would imagine he'll miss the West Ham game as well, because even if he tests negative and comes back into training, he's going to come back very late in the week, you would think. So um, was anybody worried about that? Were you worried about that, Naden? Um Obviously, the first port of call is just to make sure that he's, he's in good health, you know, that he gets through it just fine. But the way that City are, you can see that there's always somebody next in line to play. Like even yeah. when you look at the team today, they went with Cole Palmer instead of a Jesus or or a Mares, and they still look good. So I think that sort of squad depth means that 
even though you miss the his potential, his potential to be brilliant, they're still very capable as a side because, like in my opinion, the best thing about City is for as good as they are as individuals, it's the collective that so far outweighs everything. So whoever comes in, they form part of the same plan. Like Bernardo Silva working hard, Foden doing what he was doing. Like Foden didn't have his best day today either, but I said defensively and stuff, he was still strong because he, everybody made sure that it was impossible for Everton to be in the game today. So whoever yeah. came in for Kevin, you might not have the ceiling that he has, but you can still have just as big an influence in terms of just trying to win a game on a on a game to game type basis. So it's a, it's a shame for him because I think he played well, you know, at Old Trafford and so on. And you think maybe he's going to get into a nice run of form, but this is just the nature of the situation we're in right now. And I'm sure in some ways, you know, by the time he comes back, he'll be chomping at the bit to get back in the side because as was the case at almost a year ago when Kevin got injured and the team went on that run where they were winning pretty much every single week, you know, that was without him. So it shows they are capable, but with him, you know, the, the ceiling is just potentially that little bit higher, but you know, they're still just about, <laughs> they're doing just fine without him to a certain extent as well. What did you make, Tony, of, of, of Cole Palmer? I mean, obviously we saw a brief, a very brief appearance by James McAtee at the end as well, who's a, a player that I watch in the EDS and in the youth setup, and, and I'm very excited about. Personally, I, I thought seeing Cole Palmer on the pitch and getting a pretty much a full 90 minutes was very exciting. But how, how would you analyse it, you know, with the sort of, uh, in the aftermath of the game, with the emotion gone? Um, I think it was what was to be expected, really, with any youngsters that are coming into this squad. Um, you're not just coming into any squad, really. Um, you're coming into Pep's squad and he's only going to be there on merit. Pep's not going to put anybody in that he doesn't feel ready. Um, personally, I think we saw um, what we'd expect with a lot of youngsters that come in. There was those kind of TV mistakes, I suppose, where, you know, there was the odd error where you'd say, oh, we well, could have done this, you could have done that. But I think he had a really good game. He was pulling players out, allowing other players to create space. Um, and he kept his head up and was constantly running. Um, we got that goal, the third goal in the end. And I think, you know, that could potentially have come if he had uh, passed to Bernardo first rather than take the shot. But these are all things he's going to learn as a kid. And we said it's very similar uh, with Foden when he was getting his first uh, few games in. It is going to take time, but it looked very promising. And I was um, really impressed with him, to be honest. And Peck will I, I do like... what he did with uh, with Foden, wanting Mark, you know, and yeah. ease him in little bit by little bit. I thought it was brave, uh, brave of Pep. Listen to me. I thought it was interesting that Pep played him in the middle. There's a lot more responsibility to go. Um, to, I mean, you're in the middle. The ball's near you a lot. You come. You've got opportunities in the middle. So the fact he didn't ping him, make him play out wide as he, you know, as he might often do with a young player, I thought was interesting. And I, I agree with Tony. He got better and better as the game got on. He got used to knowing. He, obviously, we don't have play centre forward, and we don't want to go into that subject. But he played up front and then kept coming short to get involved in the game and then run again. And he got better at doing that as the game went on. Maybe as well as Everton got more tired, so there's a few more spaces to run into. But I thought he had a great game, Palmer. I thought he was quite unlucky not to get more shots on goal. He tried three or four times, but that'll come. It's quite right, Tony. I think uh, he'll get better and better. He's definitely worth his place in a squad. And with the, it's not just with the injury, with a couple of injuries and because we've got these three relatively big games in a week, it's great to be able to play him. You know, he probably won't get anywhere near a starting um, game, it's starting for us against PSG, but you never know, he might get another game against West Ham as he goes in and out of the team. Why not? He did he did enough today to justify that. I thought McAtee only had a few minutes, but God, he's got a good feet, hasn't he? That's that like, little bit of a dribble inside the box. Was really, really right in front of me uh, in the Colin Bell stand. 
very, very impressed with the way he moved the ball about, trying to get his shot away. He was desperate to get his shot away, wasn't he? Um, but yeah, I, I've watched him a few times and uh, for the EDS, and I'm excited about him as well. I wonder when you're watching a game, Nadam, being a, a former player, whether you watch the game differently than, than we do. When you watch somebody like Cole Palmer, are you thinking, as you would have done as a defender, how do I stop him or or what are his strengths and what are his weaknesses? Or do you just watch it these days as a spectator like we do? Well, when you know you don't have to play against anybody, you don't have to really go too in-depth in terms of seeing their strengths. But I was I was interested because... As the game started, I thought he was going to play out on the right and say still and go through the middle. Yeah. But then when he started playing through the middle, I thought that's interesting that like in terms of the trust from Pep, putting somebody down through the middle, he was a youngster. That's a very significant position to be in yeah. because Cole isn't isn't the central forward, let's say. So when he went in there, I thought, let's see how he does. But in fairness to him, he was making those runs in behind. He was coming short when he needed to, but he was never just letting the game pass him by. He was constantly occupying the people at the back. And I think that's key because in that central role, you're probably going to get the fewest touches of any player in the forward line. So it's, can you remain patient and make sure that you continue doing the job that's being asked of you? And in fairness to him, he did. And like I, I liked it. And then when the game got more open, you saw him get more touches. And I think he played a great through ball for Mares, which created the Sterling chance, which he, where he didn't quite shoot late in the second half. But it's, uh, it's promising. And I think one thing about Pep that you see now is that he's not shy of throwing somebody in to that central position when we've not seen them there before because he did a similar thing to probably Foden, was it a year and a half ago? Maybe away to either Chelsea or Liverpool or something like that. And it just goes to show that he wants to educate them and put them out there. And it might not make sense to us, but it adds a string to the bowl of already really good players because now they can play anywhere in the forward line and understand what's needed to be able to create space for everybody else as well. So it's almost like a sense of selflessness that can be drilled into the players by putting them into an unfamiliar position and saying, well, this will work if you do this. And this that we speak of isn't necessarily something that they're used to, but I thought he did do well. And again, like those Everton centre-backs, they've not, they're not going to walk off the field and think, you know, I didn't really have anyone in and around me because they were chasing channels. They were traveling to see him post up sometimes, him playing on the shoulder. And best of all, he didn't get the ball all the time, but he kept making the runs. And that's, that's like, that's really, really key when it comes down to understanding your importance in a team. It's not only when you get on the ball, it's the stuff that you do off it as well that can really set the tone. Another thing that caught my eye today was the fact that it was Laporte and Stones that started the game. Um, obviously, Ruben Diaz was, I, I assume, rested. And Ake came on as a late substitute. And suddenly you start to think to yourself, and I heard a few people around me saying, when Ake came at first, they weren't sure why City had signed him. But now maybe they were starting to see that he fits comfortably into this defence. And having four... Um, very good quality defenders like that is key. And I don't know what Pep does, um, but it, he he has a way of keeping everybody happy. I mean, perhaps, perhaps a clue to that, which is something that you alluded to, Naden, was the way he reacted to Kevin De Bruyne's absence because of COVID. The first thing he said in the press conference was, never mind whether we can cope without him or not. The most important thing is he's a human being and we want him to suffer as little as possible and make a full recovery as possible. And the fact that that was right at the front of his mind when we know how competitive Pep is as an individual tells me a lot about Pep as a human being. But equally, it tells me a little, gives us a little insight, I think, into to how he manages players and how he gets them to do what they do, which is to be completely focused, completely dedicated to the team ethic mm -hmm. all the way through. I mean, I know you, you didn't have Pep as your manager, Naden, but 
do you agree with what I'm I'm assessing in terms of the way he handles people, human beings? Yeah, I, I do. I, I don't think it's a case that maybe he's universally loved by all the players, but I think the players understand what he's trying to do. I think when he first came to the club, he said, if you want to be a player that's going to play in every game in a season, then this isn't going to be the place for you because I'm going to rotate. That's what he said. I think speaking to Gail Kalisha, that's what he said literally on day one. So for the players going forward, if you don't have that in the front of your mind, then what are you doing? You know, if you feel upset because you're not playing right now, well, you will likely play further down the line or at some point. And there's so many games available. Like last year, I think was it 61 games they played or something like that. Like you could have played 40 of those games, but you've also missed 20. But 40 is still a lot of games to have played. But I think he does understand that for the players which he has, because he does like to give the credit to the players when something goes well, they're all capable of starting anywhere in the Premier League. So the 11 he picks is great, but the seven or eight that he has on the bench and the ones who miss out on the squad altogether, he understands that he has to find a way to manage them if he wants to be successful. Because we're seeing some teams now where as soon as like two or three players get injured, the wheels fall off completely. But City, they don't have that because they've got the quality there and they've got a motivated group of players. Because even look at, say, all the talkers that Sterling's going to leave, he's, he's having a nightmare, he's this, he's that, he's whatever. And he's come back from an international break and I thought he looked really good today because he's somebody who's desperate to get in, make an impact and maybe play the games further down the line. But, you know, the ultimate test for as good as Pepe is as a manager, as a coach, as an individual, like it's easy to rotate at the start of the season. But when push comes to shove and it's all the big games come the end of the season, like it's unlikely he rotates. And I think that would be the disappointing factor for some of those people because at last year, last season, come the League Cup, maybe the Champions League, look at the way the team's looking now. Bernardo Silva wasn't playing. Rodri wasn't really playing. You know, people like Jesus wasn't playing. So, and Laporte wasn't playing. But those guys are still here. And it's still very motivated to try and stay in the team. And I think they want to be around in the business end of this season, should City be involved in absolutely everything. And the way it's going, you wouldn't be surprised if that was the case, would you? Not at all, no. I mean, Tony, I suppose just like uh, I'm sure Mark and Nadim, as well as I, watched Match of the Day last night. And whilst this is a City podcast, and I'm asking this question, for a City reason rather than a United reason. But when I listened to David De Gea speaking on there and saying that the players didn't know what, what they were supposed to do when they got the ball, and then I look at what City do, which is that every player knows exactly what he wants to do with the ball when he gets it. The contrast really could not be sharper, could it? I mean, when I sat watching City today, that thought went through my mind about what De Gea had said. And I thought, there's never a moment when a City player in possession seems to not have an idea what his next pass is. It's almost like they're looking two or three passes ahead, isn't it? Yeah, it's not just in possession. I think it's out of possession as well. I think Pep drills them so well that they know where they should be to make that run, to make that space. Like we were talking about Palmer earlier, um, pulling players out. And I think that's all the hallmarks for Pep team, really. Um, and I think that's the big concern with a lot of City fans that I've spoken to about when Pep leaves and who comes in and that side of it, which I'm sure we'll discuss way down into the future because it's not one for today. But um, And this is where we've said before about certain players when they come and they get a little bit of stick within the first season. And I think that's part and parcel of still learning the Pep way because Mahrez, when he first joined in that first season, he was pretty, Bernardo even, was in and out a little bit, wasn't really hitting form. Come the second season... And we start to see there was that you know, Pep's um, having drilled them at training and all the rest of it. And it comes to fruition, come the second, we had it the same with Cancelo. We see it quite a bit with a few of the players. And I do think that that's all part and parcel of Pep and his 1% of 
making sure everything and that extra one percent is you know on on point so it's all down to pep really and i do think we will struggle not well not necessarily united struggle but i think we will struggle when we do unfortunately have to say goodbye mark what, what do you only want to that yeah i like uh, the whole notion of um making sure that people are not selfish. You know, it's a team game. I mean, you, you know, you could put, you could apply this to lots of uh, instances, a lot of workplaces, a lot of team efforts. The idea that it's not about the self, it's about the group. Uh, and think about this, Pep's, I think Pep's um, getting the best out of Foden, having brought him through the way he has done. But he's currently doing exactly the same for McAtee and also Palmer. And he probably, if he's here for a year and a half more, won't see the benefit of that. There's no benefit in a strange way to him bringing Palmer through into the team to be brilliant for the next manager, which is actually what is likely to happen. He should be going out spending a load of money and make sure Palmer gets nowhere near the team if it was all about selfishness. But he's the exact opposite of that. He's about the club. He wants to build a club and leave a, a legacy of all these trophies, the great style of football. And the, the, the clubs that we would want to emulate do a really good job of transitioning from one manager to the next. And that's what we've got. To, we've never, we've never had to do that. You know, it's uh, it's not been something we've had to deal with. That's the that's what will happen next. And of course, uh, them lot over the road are just like lurching from one. You know, someone's going to get one. I can't. It's, I find it hysterical. I'm going to be honest with you. They're going to lurch from one manager to the next, getting it wrong time after time. And we need to make sure that obviously we're the exact opposite to that, and we have a good transition plan for when Pep wants to move on. Everybody will give him his best wishes, exactly as we have done with the players who've moved on. Um, and I think we can do it. And I think we've got the right setup behind the scenes to be able to do that. I was going to say, I think that comes from the board, really, um, yeah. Yeah. downwards. And I think we're seeing that with the academy. Um, a lot of when, for example, um, Mancini, Pellegrini, it was always the, the old mantra from the press of, oh, the £200 million bench, it was this £100 million here. And we even get it to this day, you know, Grealish £100 million, it's all about spending money, this, that and the other. Whereas now what we're seeing is the academy of the last five, ten years coming to fruition, coming through the ranks and starting to play. And we've seen across, you know, looking at the swamp, you know, you can throw money at a team, it doesn't make them a great team. Um, you know how much they spent over the last 10 years so it isn't all about money and it is about that vision that the board have had um, since day one that they've put the right people in place um, not necessarily just to look at what is going to happen and who they're going to buy but who they're going to have in the academy who's going to be managing them what style of football they're playing and having that kind of I think it was uh, Khaldun who uh, turned the phrase for was in one of his interviews that holistic approach and we all kind of went What's he on about? It's football, you know, it's realistic, but, but we're all seeing that now. And I think that's all down and credit to them, really. You know, I'm not going to call it the swamp or whatever, just because I technically work in media, but I know what you're talking about. And it's interesting because they've brought in one of the best players in the history of the game. Yeah. And they look worse because the moment yeah. you bring him in, all the talk from the outside will be about him. There was once a point where over there they said their old manager used to say, there's nobody, there's no one player that's bigger than the club. Yeah, now we find ourselves in a situation where it kind of feels like there's a player who's bigger than the club because when he doesn't play, questions are asked about the manager and now the manager can't just say, well, off you go. And it just shows like the power of the collective for as good as City are as individuals, all they're doing is the job that's required of them by their teammates and by their manager and by their coaching staff. And that it seems so basic, especially when they have the sort of football IQ and, so, and technique level that they have. But look how effective it is because for me, when City get going, like, if they're clinical, there's no team that's anywhere near as good as they are. And that's front to back. 
And that's even with players in the team who, and it's not because you've got 11 Kevin De Bruyne's. It's because you've got 11 of the like smartest, most well-drilled, technically proficient, die-hard, tough, everything. Like you could get kicked by Laporte the same way you could get kicked by Bernardo, the same way you could get kicked by like um, Kevin De Bruyne. It doesn't matter. They've just got that desire and everything. And it's, it, I feel so lucky. This is an absolute joy because it wasn't that long ago when I was playing. We didn't score a goal at home for four months, but you know, that's neither here nor there, is it? <laughs> Well, one question I wanted to ask you, Nadam, and it's, it, it, this has lent itself to that conversation because you've made that transition now from mm. being a player to, to the media uh, very well, I have to add, as well. And I've said that right from the beginning when I first started talking to you, that you'll be a superstar. You're already a superstar, but you'll be, you'll, your star is rising. I, I just you. wonder, you, you know, you've declared yourself a City fan. You've always been a City fan. Mm-hmm. How, how difficult is it, is it to juggle that? I mean, I don't want to get into politics here but you know when you're in politics you you can't actually have an allegiance especially if you're on something like the BBC you know you're, you're supposed to just just be neutral all the time and always fair play both sides now if you're on a local radio station like I was for many years um, I as the commentator was guided into not saying we and and not showing too much allegiance even though everybody knew that I was a blue you're a, as in the role that you've got do you feel that you have to be neutral and do you act in different ways when you're on different media platforms well when I come on the city live stuff I can just throw it all in the bin and just say whatever I want to say I might throw in a we might turn up in a city show who cares you know what I mean it's one of those things but as for the other stuff I do try my best to be neutral and I think overall I think I I think I am that, even though I want City to win. If they don't win, I I think I'm quite good in terms of describing why they didn't, like what the opposition did well, what City didn't do well. And I'll be disappointed about the result, but the process is one of the things which I think I specialize in. So it's not too difficult for me to not say we when it's like a nationally televised thing. But unfortunately, one thing I'm seeing is that it's not the case for some other people. Like it Absolutely. was, a, oh, mate, a couple, a couple of weeks ago. I was thinking like, Listen to my word in here. I choose for me personally, I pay for BT Sport because I like the Champions League. Yeah. If four English teams are in it, great. If four English teams aren't in it, it's fine. I like the Champions League. And I was watching Man United versus Atalanta. And that was the game where Robbie Savage shouted Viva Ronaldo down my TV during the game. And I'm like, what is this? Because I I didn't pay to watch a United version of a Champions League game. I paid to just watch a game and have people talk about what's going on in the game. Like, I understand you don't have the same understanding of, say, Atalanta and their situation. But there was genuine excitement every time United was scoring a goal. I'm like, but I didn't tune in for that. I tuned in to watch the game and it felt like I was wrong for not rooting for Man United in the game because that's what the coverage was dictating. And I thought to myself, well, what's the point in that? And why is this a big, why is this okay? When, as I say, I'm doing everything I can to make sure it's not a we. Like, when City do well, I can smile and talk about it afterwards and say why they did well. But if they do badly, I'll be like, well, this is football, firstly, because you don't win every single game. And here's why I think that happened. That's my analysis. And then we move on. But for other people, like, basically seeing them crying on TV, it's, in my opinion, it's pathetic. But, you know, that's each that are on, I guess. Well, whilst you make a very good point, and I agree with you, um, let me play devil's advocate to you, right? Cool. 
when England are playing on TV, are mm -hmm. you happy for the commentators to go, great goal by England, we, we, we've got through to the World Cup final, but on the basis that the assumption by the commentary team is that at least 95% of those watching are England fans? Do I think that's different? Um, I would say... Yes, I think I think that's I think that's different. I do think that's different. I think when it comes down to the stuff about, say, Champions League or the feed or whatever, like you can find a specific version of that commentary for that game, probably through the channel of the particular team and so on. So but, I'm not defending Robbie Savage. Oh no, no, so, of course, no, I understand. If, if an English team is playing a Spanish team in the Champions League. And I'm not a United fan, and I can't deny that I watched that game wanting yeah. Villarreal to win. So I don't yeah. want to hear Robbie, who I actually like. I get on yeah. with Robbie really well, shouting Viva Ronaldo. But he also knows that 95% of the audience are United fans. Does he, does he know that? Well, does he know that? Assumes, he's, 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 he's assuming that. And one thing which we've seen over the past few weeks is United have struggled. For as much as they're one of the biggest clubs in the world and they've got millions of fans, they've got a lot more people who do not like them one bit. That's one thing which I'm picking up because there's a lot of people reveling in what has been the last month, two months for Man United because for years before that, you didn't really have a say with that. But it doesn't feel like it's that anymore. So there is more of an audience. Some people tune into United to see a car crash in the same way they might tune in to see that maybe they'll win. And I think that's something which kind of gets forgotten by some of the people who are talking about that. And for context, again, you know, I'm not trying to say there's complete bias in media because there's not. But the day before, City were playing against uh, Bruges and it was like a masterful performance. But the way they were talking during the game, it's like everyone should be bored and they should just go and find something else to do because it's just too easy for City now. Well, the reason it's too easy is because of the nature of the performance which they put out. So why is that not being championed? Whereas the other stuff, oh, it's going to... Like the wording was at halftime and it was 2-0, they just started the second half. It said, is this going to be another one of those iconic nights at Old Trafford? And I thought, when on God's earth was the last iconic European night at Old Trafford? Because if you're saying that, it just goes to show that in the press, you the way that you were raised and the feeling you had when you were younger, that sticks with you. Because in their mind, they remember iconic times at Old Trafford. But say, I think the last time they won a, the Champions League was like 2008, maybe. If somebody was born in the year 2000, they're probably too young to have enjoyed that. But that person that was born in the year 2000 is now an adult at 21 years of age. So when you talk about the history of Manchester United, the young people haven't seen it. So who are you really talking to when you say how great Manchester United as a club? Because at this point, if, if United goes through another five years of this, maybe 10 years, they'll sound exactly the same as Liverpool fans did come the turn of, come the, turn of the century about the great years in which they had. And it just doesn't, and like Forrest, it just doesn't add up because times are changing and football's not where, it, not where it was, but somehow we're being told that it is. I think it's also for me, um, just to jump in, obviously I'm not in the media, um, but for me, I think it all comes down to the balance. So if you're getting that at United in terms of commentary, are we getting that when City are playing and we don't, we've, we've not had it for years. I think Sky to a degree with uh, Meeks on there now, uh, we're starting to get it a little bit and his enthusiasm and I think it's fair to say Sky approach things differently when it comes to football. So you clearly know Neville's allegiances are going to be United. Um, and you clearly know that Meek um, is obviously going to be City, um, and then you've got Carragher for Liverpool, etc. So you do see those allegiances come through with Sky. But when it comes to BT, I mean, we've had McManaman for years now commentating on our game, and uh, I just got to zone him out because sometimes <laughs> when he's just, it's almost like he's watching it rooting for everyone but us. 
and it really winds me up sometimes. And like I say, I think it depends if you're going to go for that kind of oh, Viva Ronaldo. I mean, you want to see the same at when City are playing or when Chelsea are playing or Arsenal or whoever it is, but you don't, you only get it with certain teams. And again, it comes through those biasness. I do think that it's a bigger problem within sport, really, especially for um, other teams like Everton today, for example. Um, I was sat there at one point chatting to uh, the guy next to me at the game, and we were saying, like, you know, 15 years ago, we had this solidarity with Everton because we were both kind of the little brothers in the city in terms of they were always overshadowed by Liverpool, um, to some degree still are, and obviously we in the past were overshadowed by United, and then, you know, they're trying to, with their owners, um, replicate similar to what we've done. Um, they're struggling a little bit, but we were just talking about that in general. Now, the smaller teams won't ever get any form of bias from the commentators um, or from any of the pundits, really. And you do kind of feel for them. But City have always maintained that in the years to come, because of what we're doing now, we will have the, that biasness down the line. And, you know, when our kids become the next journos and the uh, pundits and the commentators, etc. But I just think that regardless of who it is, it needs to be even-handed because, for example, BT, it's generally always going to be Savage and McManaman who are um, commentating between them on whatever the game is anyway. And if they can't do it for all of them, don't do it for any of them. You know, I, I agree. And for me, like, bias after a game is fine because it's like, the debrief and you can show your emotions then because you're happy that your team's won. You're happy they've made it to the next stage, you know, and not everybody tunes in to watch what's being said after a game. Likelihood is if you've tuned, if you're still watching the TV program after the game is because you want a certain reaction for something, but it's when it's the cold commentary that gets me like, what is going on? Because you've got one person who's the main commentator, who's brilliant at being neutral, brilliant. And then I thought the role of the pundit was to provide insight, not to just show that they're solely rooting for something to happen. Like if, as I say, if it was England in the world, in the European Championship final and the feeds coming through the BBC, the likelihood is that the vast majority, as Ian would say, was, is going to be that. But yeah. this, isn't, this isn't that. Like I, maybe, I, let me hold my hands up. Maybe I was tuning in to watch United have a car crash. Maybe I tuned in at 2-0 thinking this is going to be fun. But then for, from that point forward, the next four to five minutes, I was just hearing somebody root for a team. And I'm like, nah, I didn't pay for this. Because if I did, I'd be watching Man United TV and not BT Sport. That's just my take on it anyway. Yeah. I know Mark wants to come in on this. I can tell from his body language. But just before he does, just before he does, let me give you this little sort of insight. Andy Hinchcliffe worked with me for quite a long time. Now, um, Andy is somebody who takes commentary and, and, and his job very, very seriously, no doubt like Nadam does. And we've had long conversations, Andy uh, and I, when he first came to Radio. He, he was the, I brought him in, really, because he, he was reluctant to get involved in sort of punditry. And then he ended up doing every game home and away with Key 103. And now he's on Sky and he's doing stuff. And I hear a lot of City fans saying that Andy's anti-City. But I know from having talked to Andy a lot that what he's trying to do desperately to be is to be ex absolutely fair and neutral and, and to be really honest and, and pro professional in his analysis. The trouble is that the perception of City fans is having seen him come through the youth team and be a City fan, they expect him to be, this is what my perception anyway, more for City, more tub thumping now he's working now on a national station um 
I, I think that's a difficult job for him to try to get right. And I feel sometimes that the criticism that, that he gets is unfair because he's just an ultra-professional in terms of what he's trying to do. Now, when I've talked to you, Nadam, you've, you know, on the vlog or something or on something like this, you've not hidden your allegiances and, and I don't expect you should you shouldn't do. Um, but equally, this might be something that's going through your mind as you're progressing through the ranks. And I certainly don't mean this in a patronising way. I hope it doesn't come across that way. But as you, if even when, as I expect you to, you go through the ranks, you might... I guess have to think differently. I don't. I don't know. Mm. Um, and, and the trouble is, at the moment, everybody knows you're a diehard blue. Everybody knows that. Well, you say that. Not everybody does, but it's always easier to be that when I see you coming over at the microphone. If it's something <laughs> else, then that's not. That's not to be the case. But I, I do. Under, I do understand what you're saying, and I do try and be as neutral as possible because I, because I've played. I think I understand how it must feel to be a player for certain teams in certain situations, and if they did something well. You don't want to have that just brushed to the side because you don't like you. Like some of my sworn mortal enemies and teams that I hate have received tons of credit from me in the last year that I've been doing this because something that they've done is good and something that they've done is right. And I'm not saying I hate them for it. It's just like, that was good. That's a great bit of play. This is an incredible finisher. This is a, this is a really good team right now. Like if, you, if, if it was ever possible to have a transcript of everything that I said, it's unlikely to be able to know which teams I hate and which people I hate. And there are tons of teams and people that I hate, but it's not my job to hate them because I'm being paid to be a pundit about all of football, not just Man City. So I'm trying to... I can't, I, I don't ask you to give me an example, do I? <laughs> but... <laughs> Listen, some things, some some situations which are on fire bring me a lot of joy, but I, I do not <laughs> sound like that when, uh, when I get a microphone in front of me to give a take on it. Let's just say that. I did a commentary of the United uh, United game once to prove a point where I had to do it from the United perspective. It was United against Juventus in the Champions League many, many years ago. And I'd been offered the job to be the United reporter at, at the BBC. And I said, no, I don't want to do it. And, and so they got somebody else in to do the job. Um, but there were a couple of games where they needed uh, people to fill in and they didn't pick me initially. And I said, why have you not picked me? And they said, well, because you didn't want to do the job. I said, well, I want to prove that I can do it. So I did this United-Juventus game, Old Trafford, full match commentary. Um, Alessandro Del Piero was playing for Juventus and he scored after about five minutes or something like that. I'm on an Old Trafford in the press box commentating. And as the ball hits the back of the net, I'm absolutely you know, jumping for joy because Alexander <laughs> Del Piero scored. And under the under the desk, I'm fist pumping, but my voice is going, oh, this is terrible for United, <laughs> uh, Alexandro. And then when Ryan Giggs scored the winner, they won 3-2 in the match, I, I absolutely went ballistic. Giggs scored, brilliant. And it, it was killing me to do it. But afterwards, <laughs> I said to my boss, I said, did I prove I could do it? And I suppose that's sort of what you're talking about, Nate. A minute, you've got to... Exactly. Yeah. Part of it is acting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Like, what's the audience? But anyway, we've 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 held we've held him back for too long now. You wanted to say something about ten minutes Go ago. On, what was it? Yeah, I was enjoying listening to you talking about it. I actually think the best pundits you don't have to be um, right down the middle are even handed, and I think maybe Tony used that phrase actually. And uh, and even if you're a so-called city pundit, I can watch another team score a great goal. I remember Palace playing us and beating us at home a couple of seasons ago, and they were battering it in from all angles. The goals they scored were unbelievable that day. And I don't see any reason why uh, somebody who's got an allegiance to one club 
can't be even-handed enough. The intelligent ones can do that. I like Martin Keogh. He's, you know, he's got no reason to love City, particularly from what I know. Um, and he always describes our matches pretty well. He, and when it does, you know, maybe even, you know, he, he always describes the football quite well. He understands it. Played under Wenger. He brings intelligence to it, I think. And he brings um, some knowledge to it. So I don't think you have to be. I do think, though, that we, a lot of City fans kind of want our own pundits, you know. We're so we're a bit desperate for some City pundits, and it's almost as um, as uh, like uh, to go up against the fact that there's been United and Liverpool ones for as long as we can remember. I mean, I'm nearly 60, and I, I seem to have been watching telly with just United and Liverpool pundits for my entire life. So to have a few of you guys out there is great. But I don't have a problem with you being even-handed. I like it. And it makes your points even stronger when you are making points about City. You know, um, so just before City played Liverpool, I was on a show and the whole United Liverpool type situation with historically having a lot of pundits in the in the media was was came to fruition because I was on a I was behind a camera basically. I was I was at home I was doing it remotely. And they were in the studio and they, they spent five minutes basically just attacking City. And I was sitting there behind the camera. Like, I wasn't even on screen. I was like, oh my God, like, what is going on? Like, where's this come from? And they were saying, oh, the defense is terrible. This guy's bad. There are shambles this. No one's going to be able to stop Salah, blah, blah, blah. And I came on and said, um, okay, so I don't know where to begin here, but, um, and I then presented facts. Like, you want to say City's defense is bad? But Liverpool just conceded three the week before to Brentford. I said, why are we not talking about that? And that makes me seem like I'm a massive City guy. But that's just the other side of the conversation about two teams which are going to come against each other. Like, why is that a wild thing to say? Like, oh, you can, obviously you'd say that because you're a blue. No, I'm saying it because I watch both games. Like, that's yeah. just what it is. Like, why is it insane to present an argument for both sides of things? Like today with Everton, I'll speak when I was on with Mike on, um, on Radio Manchester. He was talking about how maybe Everton need to show more fight. So I said, well, what does it mean to show fight? And then he said another cliche. I said, okay, so what does that mean? So then he said something else and it was about throwing more bodies forward. And I said, the difficult situation that Everton have in this moment is that if you try and become more expensive, it plays into Man City's hands. But then also you look at the goals which City have scored and they're two, this is when it was 2-0. And those are two exceptional goals. If City don't score those two exceptional goals, then it's nil-nil going into the last 10 minutes. And would you be saying Everton need to show more fight? Because the two things which have broken them down are exceptional. They're not normal. Overall, Everton, you look at it, you say they did well, they were solid. Yeah. So, like, that's not me taking something away from City. That's in some ways me giving some credit to Everton, even though I'm absolutely delighted that City are winning 2-0 and the goals that have been scored are incredible. But that's, that's like insight. And then lo and behold, Everton throw a few more bodies forward late on in the game. And then when uh, Bernardo scored his goal, City had seven players in the box. They had a seven versus six. Yeah. Like, that's is that fight? Or is that, like, the fight that now you've played into their hands because you've, you've thrown caution to the wind? Like, that's the balance. Like, if you can find it. I celebrated the goals. I said, that's a great goal. That's a great this. But, like, there's credit to be had for the other side because, I've like, I'll be honest, for most of my career, I've been the other side. I've literally been the other side, the underdog. So you have to give, you have to talk about it realistically. Like before uh, with QPR, when we finished 17th on, in 2012 and we stayed up, I never knew what it was to celebrate staying up on the last day, finishing 17th, because for all the years before that, I'd been told essentially by Man United and Liverpool pundits and alike that you're a failure to celebrate finishing 17th. But that finishing 17th, for some players that were in my team that year, that's the highest they ever finished in the football pyramid in their whole careers. Mm. And with that, 
it secured them another chance to play in the Premier League, to play against all these places which they dreamed of playing in before, meant that people kept their jobs. It meant everything financially secured the whole football club. So when we finished 17th, I got it. But for the 10 years prior, I was told, no, these guys are failures. They're embarrassing for doing so. And that's, as I say, because there's a sense of bias there because apparently the only way to do it is the way worry. they did it. The fans got it because the fans get it all the way down the pyramid. You know, that happens every single season to probably nearly half the clubs who are playing in a different division were mm. glad we stayed up. You know, Southampton would be take, rip your arm off right now to be guaranteed staying exactly. up. So, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you got to get it like we do almost. We like, were delighted. Like, like, it's, like it's not about finishing 17th, it's about staying in the Premier Correct. League. Yeah, At some yeah, stage, yeah. it's not about the position, it's literally about the status and what you can be gained for the next year. Because as well, when you go down to the Championship, there's no guarantee you'll ever come back again. Like it's career changing. But as I say, before that point, there weren't people who'd been in that situation who were making up the main sort of bulk of TV talk on, on skies and whatever. So you're almost being trained to think of a particular way, but that's not the case. But that's, that, that's happened for decades that where United and United fans, fans think United is football. Yeah. That's what it is. They, they judge everybody and every other club by the standard of their own. Now, because they, they've, they've found it interesting at the moment, of course. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, you know, football fans around the country kind of get it for each other. You know, I get why do people go and watch Rochdale? You know, why do they go and watch Rochdale? Well, you know, why shouldn't they celebrate when they stay up? Why shouldn't they celebrate when they went from the fourth division to the third division? They're, these are fantastic moments. That's why you play. That's why I watch. That's mm-hmm. why I still watch for these golden moments. And it's great to have our team playing this brilliant football right now. But I remember what it's been like at other times. Mm-hmm. And I had some of the best football times of my life during them. Some mm-hmm. better than the ones that I'm even getting now. So, yeah, um, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, name and, and glad you had that moment. I, was, I saw a fabulous game yesterday at Boundary Park where Oldham were a goal down, uh, got level, uh, was 2-1 down, got level and got a win in the dying seconds of the game to win 3-2. Oldham are fighting for their lives in the fourth tier of English football with an owner that most of the, the supporters don't want. The joy and the relief on the faces of people when they were leaving that stadium was every bit as good for them as it was when we watched Sergio Aguero score that, that title-winning goal. Don't ever underestimate that, um, you know, yeah. people mm-hmm. power, fan power, and that emotion of football, um, which, let's not get onto this subject, but the VAR is slightly spoiled for me, yeah. um, you know, it is, is what football is all about. Now, in the remaining time we've got on in, in this podcast, I just want to ask, uh, and obviously you, you, you know him, Nadem, so he's, he's somebody who you'd call a friend, what do you make of the news of Sergio? I mean, I know he hasn't done his press conference yet, but it seems fairly obvious that, it, 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 well, first of all, he's had a heart problem, but it mm. looks as if he's going to have to hang his boots up. I mean, that's going to devastate the guy. And he, he's our hero. He's our legend, isn't he? Yeah, he certainly is. And it's it's going to be it's going to be so sad when that moment comes. You know, you probably expect to see tears from him and so many people who he's sort of touched the lives of, both who he's met, but who he's sort of entertained across the years as well. It's such a sad way to sort of bring things to a close because him going to Barcelona as well, you know, that could have, we could have seen another stage of his career there, which could have excited us from a distance. And even the fact that he didn't choose to stay in England, you know, this is massive. Like this is a guy who's so, so well beloved and has been at the top of his profession for so, so long. But then to almost be, you know, in some ways, we're glad that the issue has been found. 
because it means that, you know, he can see life in a different manner now. Like he can be thinking about his future that goes beyond what football is itself, because ultimately it's only such a small part of your life, essentially. So it's it's a shame. I'm sure he's going to be devastated by that because he's not, for the legacy he has at City, he doesn't have one at Barcelona. And it seemed like maybe this was going to be an opportunity to do that. But the fact is, you know, life is going to be more important for him. And in the fact that they found it and he can sort of prepare for the rest of what's to come is great. And then also, like, he'll always be welcome in Manchester. You know, for the way they were singing today, you could have sworn he just scored a goal. You know, that that's not something that's afforded to everybody. And I think that shows how much of a sort of legend he is for the club, how great he was for the Premier League, and how people truly care about him. Because this is a good guy. You know, not only was he a good player, this is a really, really good guy as well. And when you can find that sort of combination, these are the ones who, you know, will never be forgotten. So, yeah, it's a, it's a shame if this is going to be the end. You hope that it's not. But at least, you know, we're just happy to see him in this world still. I mean, I'd say this in the right way. I mean, people like you and Micah um, of the current, of the, the latest generation, to a certain extent, Vinny, I know he's in management, so we don't see him as much. And certainly Pablo Zabaleta would fall into that, that equation of players that we feel as if we know a little bit better. I saw Richard Dunn briefly at the game and he was just, just uh, before this massive modern era that we have now. But these days... The players, whilst we idolise them, feel as if they're in a little bit more of a bubble and maybe you don't get to know them quite as well as people. You know, give, give us a little insight, if you would, into Sergio the man, because the only contact I ever, I've ever had with him in, in, in the media, I ran on the, not ran on the pitch, I mean, I was a journalist, I went on the pitch with a microphone and interviewed after him one of the title wins, and he was really, really humble. His body language was... was um, something that only I, I felt at the time when I was speaking to him. And when my son was 18, I was recording some videos for his 18th birthday. And James Milner took me into the dressing room where Sergio was. And um, and, and the two of them did a little, little video for my son. And um, Sergio was just such a, a cheeky, but but really down-to-earth bloke. And that, no, those are just teeny little snapshots. Yeah. You knew him as a bloke. I mean, he just seems to me to be the exception. He's, he's not, you see him as a superstar, but actually feels like a really down-to-earth bloke. Am I, am I reading him? Yeah, right? no, yeah, you're right. I wish I would have, I wish I would have spent longer with him because I didn't, I think it was just basically one season I spent with him. But for everybody who spent long with him and knows him, everything you said there is true. He's such a humble guy. And it always blows my mind, like, when players are really good, like when they're humble, it just makes you feel weird. Like, how am I supposed to react to this guy? Because you're like, you're supposed to be on a pedestal, but you're choosing to walk alongside me. And that's, you know, that's the level of respect that they have because it's because the same sort of thing as with David Silva, like you'd be walking around and you almost want to like make sure everything's okay with him because he's the key to your success. But he's like, no, nah, we're just, we're doing this together. So, so Sergio was somebody who's like great as a teammate, great as a friend, would try and enjoy as much as he could about football itself. You know, we'll take it seriously when he needs to take it seriously, but then was always ready for a joke. I say was like he's not here anymore. He's always ready for a joke. And he's somebody, when you think about him, you picture him scoring goals and you picture him smiling and joking around. And that's who he was. And let's be clear, like, considering how young he was when he first came to City, this is a young Argentinian that's moving from Madrid across to Manchester. I think Madrid and Manchester are very, very different places altogether. So for him to have stayed for the 10 years that he stayed, if not longer, you know, that shows how much he bought into the community, bought into the football club and loved it being here. And by all accounts, he didn't really want to leave in the summer either. So I think you can sort of see, like, given how successful the club was, but how humble 
a guy he was, or a guy he is rather, you know, you can kind of pick up on his personality because it's very easy for players to come and go at football clubs, but the ones that stay the longest essentially are the ones who are both good on the field and off the field. And all the credit that we give to Vinny for who he, who he is, all the credit we give to David, who's a bit more subdued, like I guess Sergio's like slap bang in the middle, you know, he's as important, will have a joke, can be serious. And he's not, not too scared of limelight either. But, you know, as I say, what, what a guy. I still can't believe that we've got somebody who's on actually the scoring charts in terms of Premier League history. Because I remember before that, before he came in, was it season before? Two seasons before, we had Bernardo Karate and Rolando Bianchi. Great guys, but he scored four goals each come the end of the season. Like, that's something which I think I achieved myself from centre-back. So, yeah, it just shows, like, things change. But that signing was one of many that City have made where it's about as good as they are technically, they're good people. And good people and great players form great teams. And I think over the last 10 years, we've, we've definitely seen some great teams and Sergio was always a big part of that. Knowing him personally, as you do, if he is going to announce his retirement, you think he'll be emotional? Yes, 100%. 100%. I think he will be just because, firstly, he's like, he loves the game of football. He loves the game of football and the out the outpouring of love that he'll get in that moment. Like this will be a big press conference. It won't surprise me if it would be similar to say the way Messi was when he was leaving Barcelona. Like Sergio leaving the game will be something which will be covered by a lot of people. And for the nature of it, in terms of it essentially being out of his hands, if it turns out to be the case, like that's heartbreaking. I think for myself, I was very lucky to be able to walk away from the game when I wanted to. So to be told that you have to, when you feel like maybe you weren't at the highest possible point, that's going to be very, very hard for him. And, you know, trying to find a new future now at a point where come the start of the season, he would never have been thinking about finishing the game of football. He's just signed for Barcelona. And now everything is just coming to a close. Like that's, that's too fast. And I think when you lose that level of control, it will be emotional when all those cameras are there and he has to get out in front and sit and like literally talk about it. Things are hard when you think about it. Things are a lot harder when you talk about it and when you talk about it in front of an audience. So I'm sure he's going to be very, very emotional, yeah. This might be an impossible question for you to answer, and it might be an unfair one for me to ask, but when we've seen what's happened to Christian Eriksen, yeah. and we've seen other incidents a little bit like that, I, mean, I remember a player at Schalke, another team that I follow called Gerald Azamoa, who had a, um, a problem with his heart, and obviously, um, uh, you know, Mark Vivian Foway at City, unfortunately, same sort of thing happened with him. Um, I also heard, so with all those thoughts in mind, I heard somebody saying this week that, 61 games you mentioned before is too many to play in a season mm. and that the new uh, PFA chairman was suggesting that maybe there should be a limit on the number of games it, as a as a former player and having you know these subjects in mind it's, you can't answer it this I suppose but could the number of games and the intensity of football be leading to more of these types of health issues, do you think? I don't necessarily think the two are linked because with Sergio, it's not like he was playing a ton of football anyway over the last year or so. I think he, 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 they found a condition which he's had and maybe he's had this condition his whole life. This was before he was a professional, before he played that many games. But in terms of the actual number of games themselves, it does feel like a lot and you are hearing more and more players talk about how many games it is. But come the start of every season, say for City, even if you dis disregard, say, national team football, they're in the Champions League, they're in the FA Cup, they're in the league, they're in the League Cup. All those players will want to win all those trophies. It's very hard to win all those trophies and not have a ton of games. So to reduce it, what do you do? Do you just, do you just take away international football? Well, that's probably some of the highlights. That's probably one of the biggest highlights of 
maybe most players will have in their careers because of the fact they're representing their nation. You know, you can get signed for a club, but you're not going to change your national identity. So you're not really going to go down the avenue of changing that. So then you say, well, maybe we just rest people for games in the league. If you're a player, you want to play every game in the league. How about the Cups? No, I don't want to play in the FA Cup final this week because I'm, I'm a bit tired. It's, it's not a thing. You know, same thing for League Cups, same things for like Champions Leagues. And I think it's as a consequence of City being so good last year, that's why they had a ridiculous amount of games. And I think what made it worse was the timing of the fact there was European Championships that summer as well. But coming into the next year, come the summer 20, yeah, the next two summers, there's no actual football competition, is there? So maybe this will be a chance to reset things a little bit, maybe. But I understand there is a very significant conversation to be had about the amount of games that have been crammed into this last 18 months to two years. But I think it will level itself out. And the ones who are, unfortunately, the most successful players and teams will inevitably end up playing a lot more games than everybody else. But if you don't want to do it, I don't know. I think it'd be interesting to see the first person to say they don't want to play in a final because they're too tired, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, I hope I think- everybody who's listening to this podcast will, will understand that probably Mark and Tony haven't had as much chance to speak in this podcast as normal, but Nadam is just such riveting listen and, and, and contributes such good stuff. Um, I hope you hope you understand, and Mark and Tony, I hope you understand that as well. I mean, I want to finish the podcast by also giving a bit of a shout out to Mark because one of his achievements came to fruition. He'll say it's not just him, but he's certainly been a leader on this. Some new turnstiles were opened today uh, at the South Stand End to relieve some of the congestion going in. City Matters, and, and you're a key part of that, um, have, have led to that. So you, you, you must have looked at that today. I assume you went and, and had a look at it and thought, yeah. you know what, I was part of this. <laughs> Nadine may have pulled on the blue shirt, but have you got four turnstiles put in at the South Do you know what, I haven't. I have not. I have not. I don't think so. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm trying to represent the fans, as, as uh, amongst others, on City Matters, and I'll keep doing it and keep pushing. I was shoved to bits for that today, and I, I just want City fans to have the, the best of everything. We've got the best team. Um, we've got the best fans, in my opinion. We've potentially got the best ground. I just think we need to keep pushing and pushing. And I'll try to be that conduit between the club and the support. So that, that was a good thing today. Uh, slightly dull to say we've got four new turnstiles, but at least it stopped the queue. So all them people piling out of Mary D's can come at the last minute now. <laughs> well, I'm just going to give Mark and Tony a chance to say a bit on Sergio as well. So, um, Tony, what, what do you want to say about Sergio? Um, there's not much left to say. I think um, for me and a lot of City fans, he's always going to be a legend. Um, there's nothing that's ever going to change that. We're forever grateful he gave his career to us um, because he did. It was his choice. There was no doubt over the years, plenty of opportunity for him to go elsewhere. Um, and, you know, no doubt he was approached by other teams when we weren't necessarily as successful as we have been in the last kind of uh, six years. So um, I'm forever grateful to him. And I just truly, truly hope that even off the pitch, he will just come back to the Etihad for us to give him a send-off. And the same with David Silva, um, because that's one of the shames in terms of how they've left in terms of fans not being at the ground at that point, is that we've not got to give them a good a goodbye. Um, and I truly hope that we as fans get to give them that goodbye, and especially, uh, as I say, those two players, because uh, for me, we wouldn't be where we are today without uh, either of them. Mark? 
Yeah, I, I, you know, back what everybody's saying about Sergio, it's the it's the human being as much as anybody else. I mean, the fact that we love him, and I think people love him all over the country, really. He's a bit, you know, he falls into the David Silver category. Whenever I go to away games, you know, you get talking to the opposition fans if you, you know, if you've got anything about it, and you want to have a chat about the match and what's coming up. And they, they love players like that, you know. There's players that people don't like, and they don't fall in that category. Everyone loves them universally. It's a shame that... It's such a shame because it was hardly a step down going from us to Barcelona, you know, to get a two-year contract. He could have gone and set that league alight with his goals if he'd have been given the opportunity. And that's not going to happen. So it is a shame. I'm just glad that it didn't affect him at the peak of his career. Can you imagine if it happened at 27 or 28, which would have been obviously even worse. But um, it is such a shame. And I, I, hope he, I hope he finds peace in the fact that he didn't, have to suffer to find that, you know, Ericsson really, really, you know, had such a bad incident on the pitch. Um, I just, uh, I hope he, he, he sees this as a, he was, you know, he sees it, he was lucky to find out the way he did and he can, uh, he's got children, he can enjoy the rest of his life from here on in and stay healthy. Well, just with, uh, like with Kevin De Bruyne and the sentiments of Pep, um, the most important thing, even though he was our hero and and has done so much for Manchester City, the most important thing is that Sergio Aguero, the man, is healthy yes. and and remains healthy and has a, a long and healthy life now. He's achieved so much in life. He's got so much to look back on with pride and uh, and we will be forever grateful, I'm sure. Um, I'm not going to mind the Inadum to go on another another podcast until at least the new year. So um, <laughs> so maybe let may I be one of the first to wish you a happy Christmas and uh, and a, a great festive period. And thanks very much for coming on. November, the podcast. you're not allowed to say that. It's November. Uh, no, I was going to say it's a, it's a bit suspect that you're releasing this next month or something. <laughs> well, anyway, um, enjoy December then, and whatever that might bring. I'll enjoy I'll... the rest of November first. But thank you very much. <laughs> great to be on. Well, thanks for coming on, Nadam. Thanks very much to Tony and to, to Mark. And I'm sorry, I, Mark and Tony, I'm giving you as much time as normal, but no I think you'd agree with me that uh, Nadam's something special, isn't he? So uh, thanks very much indeed for your time. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to charleslouis.co.uk, who are the sponsors of this podcast. Without them, there wouldn't be one. And I should just finally... Um, say that I have a fellow podcaster on this uh, this podcast with me because Nadam is now somewhat of a star in that field as well <laughs> and has done some remarkable interviews. Um, uh, how, how much are you enjoying being the other side, asking the questions, Nadam? Do you know, it, it's good. It's good because I think the people that come on, they trust me. So they open up. They really, really open up. And when they do, you're like, it's good fun to hear their stories. Like I, I'm the same as everybody else. Like when somebody starts talking, it's almost like I'm just listening as well. And I like, I absolutely love it because for once, like people are coming and they're talking on a microphone and it's not about what came before the game before or the game to come. And you're not worried that you're going to say something which is going to put you in trouble. What you're talking about is yourself. And when it's yourself, you can never get it wrong. How about that? That's very, very true. Well, you, you quit while you're ahead, Ian. Yeah, I will. Yeah, I will stop. <laughs> Thanks very much to everybody for listening. Um, well done on City. Obviously, got PSG this week, and then the visit of West Ham. So we're we'll back with another podcaster next weekend. So in the meantime, have a great week. Uh, keep following the Blues, and remember, it's great to be a, a City fan, isn't it? Great to be a Blue. <laughs>